0: This morning we will be considering Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. These are the words of God. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, open your word to us, that as you gave this word to our forefathers and foremothers in the faith 2,000 years ago who were called to live out the faith, to live out worship to you in the face of an idolatrous and unbelieving world, so we face the same, O Lord God. And so we pray for your understanding and your strength, your joy and your glory, that we may serve you and glorify you in this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've seen, chapter 13 is developing the central command of chapter 12 which is to worship God through Christ in the midst of a world that is breaking apart because it's built on sand. Through worship and obedience, we are to build on the rock of Christ and his word. So chapter 13 hits on four areas that are especially important, four areas where we are supposed to have transformed lives in stark contrast to the idolatrous and unbelieving culture around us. And this is crucial not only to worship and pleasing God, it is also crucial to witness. So last week we looked at the first of those areas, which was love in the local church. It's the body life, the fruit of the spirit in the local congregation. Today we address the second of those areas, which is marriage and its sexual union. Now, what our text is telling us in so many words is this, God's gift of marriage and its sexual union must be prized like a precious gemstone by all people starting with God's people. God's gift of marriage and its sexual union must be prized like a precious gemstone by all people starting with with God's people now you see in our verse it refers to marriage and it refers to the bed meaning the marriage bed and that's that's the author's way of referring to God's creational design for marriage and the sexual union within it remember that God created man male and female and he joined Eve to Adam as his wife. She is called his wife. And commanded them to procreate, to fill the earth and take dominion. And all of this was before the fall. When everything was flawless and there was no sin in the world. You can see this in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And then in Genesis 2, verses 22 through 25. So God creates one man and one woman and he joins the two together in marriage and he tells them to have children and he builds the human race from there one baby at a time. So we need to realize That God did not have to do it this way. And we have to think about that because we just naturally assume well, you have to have marriage and you have to have procreation so that the human race could be built. And what we forget is God didn't have to do it that way. He could have made us like the angels, which from everything we can tell was just all at once. When He created heaven, He created it fully formed, fully glorious, and fully filled, filled with angels. All at once. And so we see in Job 38, verse 4, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Verse 7, When all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the angels. The angels were all there when he started forming, uh, uh, building up and forming the earth as opposed to heaven. So heaven is created all at once, fully glorious, fully filled, all the angels of there. So the question then becomes is why doesn't God do it that way with the human race and with the earth? And we recognize God is actually going way out of his way. He's going to a lot of extra time and trouble to do it this way. One man, one woman One baby at a time with 20 years of raising. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of effort. And whenever we see God doing something unnecessary, and children, here's a secret for you. This is the first secret to understanding the Bible, really understanding it. Whenever you see God do something unnecessary, that is, whenever you see him do something that he doesn't need to do for himself, You should always be asking, why is God doing that? Anytime you see God doing something that he doesn't need to do for himself, he's up to something. He's up to something, and you should be asking why. The second secret to understanding the Bible is that as you read the Bible, you're going to realize that every single thing we see him doing in the Bible is unnecessary. He doesn't need to do it. It's not for him. So we should be going, why, 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 why? Now, sometimes when we read something, the text tells us or indicates to us clearly exactly why God is doing it. But there's a lot of times, like God creating one man and one woman, he just does it. There's no explanation. He just does it. We should be asking why. And that brings us to the third secret. understanding the Bible which is realizing that the answer to why is always the same answer the answer is it's a gift and it's for us all the way through whenever you see God doing something he doesn't need to do and there's no explanation it's like your father bringing in a great big Christmas present that's wrapped in the most beautiful Uh, Christmas wrapping paper you've ever seen, and he just puts it under the Christmas tree and he walks off. That's the way you should look at it. We're getting a gift. I don't know what's in it, but it's a gift and it's for us. That's always the answer. And that's certainly what we see with God doing the human race the way he did. One man, one woman joined together in marriage, in a sexual union, having children and raising them up as a result of that. So when it tells us in our verse that marriage is honorable, now honorable is a good word, but it really doesn't capture what the Greek is saying here. And to give you an idea, I want to show you this word used in a different context. In Revelation 21:19, it describes the bride of Christ, that's us, that's the church, it describes us as being a beautiful and glorious heavenly city. And so it pictures the church, the bride of Christ, as having a beautiful wall around the outside that is adorned with all kinds of precious, that's our word, all kinds of precious stones like sapphire and emerald, stones that are highly, highly, highly valuable and also highly beautiful. So we wouldn't say that the wall was adorned with all sorts of honorable stones. I mean, that could just be, it could be there's nice sandstone, there's granite, there's, you know, a lot of them could be honorable. It doesn't convey... If we're talking about rubies and sapphires and emeralds and diamonds, and we're talking about gold and silver, you wouldn't say honorable stones and honorable metals. You'd say precious stones and precious metals. They need to be prized, and that's the word he uses of marriage. And so, examples of why. He is speaking of marriage in this language. We just need to think a little bit about this gift that we see God giving us in Genesis. Why is it regarded as being of priceless value? Well, it, it's a very deep subject and we could go through a number of different examples, but I'm just gonna hit on two major ones. Number one, the marital sexual union reflects by God's design the spiritual union with God that we were created for and redeemed for. The sexual union in marriage was created from the beginning to reflect the spiritual union between us and God that we were created for and then redeemed for. And so we see, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 32 that all of the duties of husbands and wives are exhorted to us as being parallels to how Christ loves the church and how the church subjects herself and honors, to and honors Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And then it quotes Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. In other words, A mystery in the Bible is something that is too wonderful to completely take in. This is a wonder, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What Paul is saying is that way back in Genesis 2, when God says a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall be one flesh, he was talking about two things at once. He was talking about Adam and Eve and all husbands and wives down through history, he was also talking about God the Son in Christ and the spiritual union we were created for with him. The second way we see the priceless value of God's gift of marriage and its sexual union is this. In marital sexual union as God created it, God gives us the privilege of learning to love like he loves. God gives us the privilege of learning to love like he loves. So let's think about how God loves us. He loves us as his sons and daughters who correspond to him as his images. We're his creatures, but he has created us in his image. That means he's created us for and with the ability to know him and to walk with him and to enter into his life and his work and his kingdom and his warfare and to reflect his character and to share in his joy and his glory. He's created us in his image. And so he's loving those who correspond to him. And yet at the same time when he loves us, he is loving those who are fundamentally other than him. In other words, fundamentally different. Because God is the infinite, eternal creator. We are finite, dependent creatures. You can't get more different than creator and creature. So God is loving those who are completely other than him, different from him in that sense. And yet, what does God do? He sets his love upon us. He binds himself to us eternally and by oath. And he creates this union spiritually between us and him, calling us to over time become all that it means to be sons and daughters of the living God. So also in God's gift of marriage and its sexual union, we are giving the privilege of loving someone who fully corresponds to us as the image of God, and yet at the same time is fundamentally other from us, someone who looks different from us, someone who moves differently than we do. Not only that, but someone who tends to think differently, someone who, tend, who tends to need differently, someone who tends to give differently differently. And so we are given this privilege of loving someone that is really the same way that God loves us. And thus we learn to love as he loves and we become more and more like him. And so we can carry this further. What is it that draws us to God in the Bible? What do we see the psalmists and others praising God for and meditating on? It's the mystery and the wonder of God, the things that are too wonderful about God to fully take in. That is what is intended to draw us to the living God. And then, in the same way, by God's design, it is the mystery and wonder of the opposite sex that is intended to draw us to one of them. Look at the Song of Solomon which is really a a poetical a song and a celebration by an engaged couple, by God's design. They are rejoicing in one another, the fact that they are going to be married. And what do they rejoice other? Because we have both the guy and the girl singing of one another. What are they singing about? The stuff they can't understand. The stuff that's different. That's what they're singing about. Every difference is a cause for celebration. The difference is where the glory is. The difference is where the beauty is. And so we see the guy singing about all the way that his fiances are different than him. That's what's drawing him. She's singing about all the ways that he's different from her. That's the glory and the beauty, the way God created it. Just as God takes an eternal oath to us, so we in marriage take a lifetime oath to one another. Why do we take an oath? Because God takes an oath. Just as God's union with the bride, his bride, the church, results in new spiritual children as they are born again of the Holy Spirit, so also our unions as husbands and wives result in new natal children. Just as God's household, the church, is the proper place for the spiritual nurture of children, so also our households as husbands and wives are the proper place for the nurture of natal children. Think about it. Even in the case of God's only begotten son, Jesus, who is God the Son incarnate, he was placed in the home and under the authority and care of a human father and mother. And we could go on and on and on of all the different ways in which marriage and the sexual union, as God created them, give us the privilege of learning to love like God loves and thus entering into His life and being filled with His character. This is why God went so far out of His way to do it the way He did. It is a wonder and it is a glory. Therefore, it is to be prized because it is of priceless value. So coming back to our text in Hebrews 13:4, it says that the bed, the marriage bed, that is the sexual union of husband and wife, is undefiled. Now here's another word that is a good word, but it just doesn't do justice to what God is saying here. We see the same word used of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. It refers to Jesus as our high priest and says that he is holy, innocent, and undefiled. That's our word. He is undefiled and then exalted above the heavens. So, this word undefiled means clean. Pure, holy, but not clean in a kitchen sense. Clean in a heavenly sense. The kind of cleanness that enables you to come into the very presence of God in heaven. That's where Jesus goes because he is undefiled. He is clean and pure. The marriage bed is clean and pure. The sexual union that God created for marriage, it is good. It's not tolerable. It's not a necessary. We've already seen it's not necessary. It's a gift. It is clean. It is pure. It is right. And it is to be celebrated. That's what our text is saying. So all of this being true, why would this gemstone of marriage and its sexual union then need to be protected? Well, that's simply a function of its priceless value and beauty. If you think about it, Anything you can come up with that has great value and beauty, anything that is of priceless value and beauty, by definition, needs protection because it means that it can be marred or ruined if it's misused. Therefore, it needs protection. A diamond necklace, a Maserati, a $75,000 over under... A competition shotgun. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Anything you can come up with that's of priceless value, a Rembrandt, a Van Gogh hanging in your living room, a Yamaha or a Concert Grand in your living room. I mean, anything you can come up with, it doesn't mean they're weak. It just means the value is so high and the beauty is so great, they have to necessarily be protected. They can be marred. They can be ruined through being misused and mishandled. So how then would God's gift of marriage and the sexual union be misused or marred? Well, simply by separating the two. Separate the marriage union from the sexual union. That's how you misuse it. That's how you mar it and ruin it. They go together and not otherwise. Let not man put asunder what God has joined together. He's joined the sexual union with marriage. That's where it belongs. Keep them together. That's how you protect them. Separate them and that's how you trample them. And so he mentions fornicators and adulterers. Fornicators is a very broad word. It simply means any form of sexual immorality, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever, any form of sexual immorality, any form of misusing or mistreating God's gift. Adulterers is more specific. That's a husband or a wife who violates the marital union. So the construction of thus verse for in the greek because the very first word there is the word honorable or precious so that's that's the lead off word that's the emphatic word the way it's put together indicates that this verse is both a statement of fact and a command to make it so it's a statement of fact of what god created in the beginning what is true And therefore, it is a command for us to make it so by all peoples everywhere, starting with us. He's basically saying, priceless is marriage. In the marriage bed, holy, good, and right. It is so in the eyes of God. Make it so in the eyes of all, starting with my people. That's what he's saying. And so the text ends then with the fact that God will judge And we need to ask the question because we see God judging all kinds of unrighteousness in the Bible. But we see sexual sin, it's kind of like in a special category. Why is God so zealous to judge sexual sin? Well, because of what we've already seen, the priceless value of the gift that is being trampled. And secondly... Because of the two kinds of monogamy that God created us for. He created us for spiritual monogamy toward God himself forever. And he created us, reflecting that, for sexual monogamy toward one member of the opposite sex for life. And so, God has created an unbreakable link between those two types of monogamy. God has created an unbreakable link between spirituality and sexuality. And that's why, for example, in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 27, where Paul is describing the downward death spiral of any society that turns away from the living God. Any society that fails to worship the living God and instead worships everything and anything else, there's a death spiral that ensues from turning away from God. And of all all the manifestations that would result from that turning away from God, that spiritual adultery, every time what Paul lists is a sexual result. This death spiral is a spiritual sexual two-step down the stairs into the abyss. And so every time it says God gave them over to some form of sexual immorality in greater and greater degree of uh, perversion, every time it says that's because of a prior um, unfaithfulness and adultery toward the living God. And so he this is one of the judgments. He gives us over to greater and greater descent and degradation sexually because we keep going further and further down and degrading ourselves in terms of our spiritual failure to worship the living God. So let's reflect for just a moment about the context of this verse that was given to these Christians in the first century. Was the gift of marriage and its sexual union prized by the surrounding culture of these Christians to whom these words were written? Not in any way. In the Roman Empire, every kind of sexual license was accepted and even encouraged all kinds of immorality, there were uh, idol temples, temples to all sorts of gods everywhere, everywhere through the empire. There was The whole thing with gods and spirituality was to be inclusive, the more the merrier. And most of those temples were actually staffed with prostitutes. So there would be an illicit sexual act that would go along with the worship. The two things went together, you see. And this was perfectly accepted, perfectly normal. You have uh, the well-known Roman statesman Cicero uh, who is still read today. Now Cicero would be considered a conservative of the day. He would have been considered an upstanding man who was a conservative standing for all the best of the Roman values. And yet in Cicero's letters, uh, at one point he holds forth on why it is not a problem for the young men to consort with prostitutes. And he basically says, this is our custom. We've been doing this for generations. When has this ever been a problem? When has this ever been condemned? Now he is a conservative. And he's saying there is no problem with all of our young men coming up in our conservative circles, consorting with prostitutes freely. But you also, you had pedophilia, you had pederasty, that would be grown men with boys who are getting close to changing into manhood. There are many contexts. Not only was it tolerated, it was expected in a lot of relationships. So you had that going on. You had you had both heterosexual and homosexual prostitutes staffing these temples. There was a temple in Corinth that was supposed to have over 1,000 prostitutes in that one temple. So this, this was a, a culture that said anything goes spiritually and anything goes sexually. And as long as you were willing to Live and let live, and there's you could bring you could bring anything in that you wanted. you could bring Jesus in, you want to worship Jesus, fantastic, come on in, come on we 'll put him in the pantheon, and you can worship away as long as you also uphold the right of everybody else to worship whomever and whatever they want. There was a emperor, one of the emperors, not in the first century, but I think it was like the second or third century. He had a private shrine in the royal palace. And what was in his uh, his private shrine? Well, he had idols in there to a number of the pagan gods, but he also had an idol in there to Abraham and to Jesus. See, as long as you're inclusive, everything works. The problem was the Christians were not inclusive. The Christians were not inclusive. The Christians said we worship only the one true God. There is only one true God, whom we worship through Jesus Christ alone. And sexually, again, they weren't willing to be inclusive. That was the problem. They said, no, God gave us the gift of the sexual union only for marriage. It's part of the gift of marriage. That's the only place it belongs. And so this is why the Christians were killed. They weren't killed. For worshiping Jesus, they weren't killed for for having the sexual union only in their marriage and being married for life. They were killed because they said everything else is wrong. And so, if the you know if you had said, well, you're killing them because of their faith, they'd said, no, we're not. We're killing them because they won't go along and get along. They're causing trouble. This is our system. Everybody can do their own thing. Anything goes spirituality, anything goes sexuality. The other facet of it was when you've got that kind of a level of essentially me worship, because that's what it turns out to be, everybody is putting together whatever kind of spirituality they want. And they're putting together whatever kind of sexuality they want. They even had prostitutes who were hermaphrodites, which is supposedly somebody who's able to show sexual characteristics for both male and female. No idea how that works, but they had them, whatever they were, they had them. If It's everybody putting together. If you've been worshiping this God and engaging in this kind of sexuality and it was working for you for a while, it was true for you, it was helping you feel the way you want to feel about your life, but then that stops working, well, just get some other gods. Bring some other into the mix. Bring some other sexual practices into the mix. Keep remaking yourself because the fundamental nature of the pagan world is that the entire cosmos... It's either just matter or it's really a big impersonal spirit, you see. But it's always forming. It's always making. So anything can become anything else, right? Well, we know what that's like. What we're seeing in our midst today, it's just ancient paganism. This is as old as the dirt, folks. There is nothing new about this other than smartphones, The rest of it is as old as it can be. We are reverting to ancient paganism. Now, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but a salt that has lost its savior is fit only to be thrown out and trampled. So if you have, um, if you picture a society as a bunch of meat that needs to be preserved And needs to be made taste good because that's the other thing that salt does. It preserves and it makes stuff taste good. That's what salt does. And so you have meat that's supposed to be preserved, but the meat goes bad. It's ruined. It's rotten. Is that a meat problem or is that a salt problem? Jesus is saying in a fallen world, that's a salt problem who's the salt? Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And so that's the way we have to approach this. We see Paul having to deal with all the pressures of that culture at the time. We think we're the only believers who face this pressure to conform, to accommodate the world, to reduce the gospel down until it's such a small thing. It doesn't affect how we live out there. We can just accommodate, or as we would say today, engage with the culture, which means accommodate the culture, become like the culture. They did not. Now, in some ways, those Christians were model Citizens of the Roman Empire. You know, there was a Pliny the Elder, or it was either Pliny the Elder or Pliny the Younger. He was the governor of one of the Roman provinces, and he was writing to Caesar because he'd found these Christians who would not say that Caesar is Lord. And so he had started torturing them to get information and putting them to death. And he's writing to Caesar to see if he should continue to do this. And Caesar basically says, yes, you should. But Pliny, because of torturing Christians, is telling Caesar what they do. And basically what he's saying is they're model citizens, except for the fact that they're not inclusive spiritually or sexually, and they will only say Jesus is Lord. They will not say Caesar is Lord. But he said they take a vow to be honest, to never betray their word, to never steal anything and so forth. So the Christians were the most honest people you could find. They were the most trustworthy people you could find. They were the hardest working people you could find. What's not to like? The only offense was they would not go along with the three things that made the Roman pagan world go round, which was anything goes spirituality, rampant idolatry, worshiping anything and everything but the true and living God, anything goes sexuality, which goes along with it, and then you got to have the glue to hold everything together with that high a level of me worship. And the glue was the Babel-like totalitarian Roman Empire with Caesar personifying it. You had to say Caesar is Lord. Have as many gods as you want. But there's only one Lord. In other words, there's only one Lord who controls life here. Do whatever you want inside yourself. Here you are now. Entertain us. That's what it was. And to allow that to happen, but to hold it together, you have to have Caesar. And we have the exact same elements in our culture today. Anything goes spirituality. And anytime you have anything goes spirituality, you will have anything goes sexuality. It's not just predictable. It's inevitable. Why? Because God would have it so. That's part of the judgment. And so we need to follow these early Christians. We need to be the most honest people you can find, the most trustworthy and responsible people you can find, and the hardest working people you can find. But we need to worship only the one true God through Jesus Christ. We need to have uh, prize and protect The gift of marriage and the sexual union that goes with it, that is the only place for sex. And we need to honor Jesus alone as Lord. Now, Paul dealt in several of his letters with how the culture was pushing in on the early church, just the way it does us. When you see the Bible saying like, love not the world, when it's talking about the world in that sense, or it says, don't be conformed to this age. When it's talking about that, this age or the world, what it means is the entire way of thinking, the entire way of valuing and living, and you can feel it. It's just that entire atmosphere that you can feel all around us and you get it on your smartphones and you get it everywhere else. It's, it's what makes sin seem normal and it makes righteousness seem weird. You know what feeling I'm talking about. That's the world that you are not to love. That's this age that you are not to allow to shape you. We are shaped by whatever we worship. That's what the Bible says. If we truly worship the one and true living God, he will shape us. And that is what's supposed to take place. So we see Paul in the first century dealing with immorality in the local church. First Corinthians in chapter five, verse one, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you that a man has his father's wife. This would be his step Mother, who is now married to his father. So, this is the result. You see, this seemed normal because of the world around. Paul is having to deal with it in the church. He tells them to excommunicate this man immediately. In other words, he gets on to them for the fact that they haven't already done so. Why not? Again, the press of the culture. He basically tells them, judge lest ye be judged. That's what he does. It's about judging righteously. So he tells them to put him out. Later he will tell them to receive him back because he repented. You also see Paul talking about sexual immorality in chapter 6 and verse 13. Listen to what Paul has to say to this Corinthian congregation. Remember, They've got all kinds of pagan temples in Corinth, including one with over a thousand prostitutes in it. He says to them, look, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, the Greeks believed that evil was associated with matter and therefore with the body. Matter is deficient. The body is deficient. Salvation is escaping this material world. And some of them believed that the body was affirmatively evil and that led to treating the body severely through extreme asceticism, which would mean no marriage, pure celibacy and so forth. So you had that extreme, but you had others that just believed that, well, the body is irrelevant. It's just irrelevant. It doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter what you do in the body. And so then you would have extreme sexual immorality. And that's why he's emphasizing the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God created the body. There's not a problem with matter. The evil is not in the matter. It's not in the body. The body is good. God will raise up. The Lord will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, quoting Genesis, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined with the Lord is one spirit with him. See the spiritual union and how that comes in as the model for how sex is to be used. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you were not your own? When God put his spirit somewhere in the Old Testament, like the tabernacle of the temple, that's God's way of saying, this is mine. This is my house. When God puts his, temp- his spirit in us, that's God's way of saying, this is mine. This is my temple. And we are the temple of living stones. But Paul also had to deal with asceticism in the same local church, same congregation, which scholars estimate that at that time was about 100 people. About 100 people That's a small congregation. And Paul is having to deal with a guy who has his father's wife. Those who think immorality is fine because it's just the body who want to go down to the temples and go to the prostitutes just like they grew up doing. And he's also got to deal with asceticism in chapter 7. Now concerning things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, so many Christians get this passage wrong because we think Paul is saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He wasn't. They were saying that. He's quoting them. Concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. In other words, asceticism. He's dealing with the same that in the same 100-person congregation because of the culture around them. And he says he, he takes this this theology of us being owned by God because he inhabits us by the Spirit and Christ purchased us. So that means you do not belong to yourself. That's, that's a radical basis for the Christian ethic. You don't belong to yourself. God says to you, God says to your spouse, each one of you, you don't belong to yourself. What does that mean? That means your marriage does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Same thing. And so this ownership ethic, listen to how he applies it within marriage. To those who were saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He says in verse 3 of 7, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see how he takes this theology of ownership, owned by God, and brings it into the marriage, and it is, there is a crossways ownership. Each body belongs to the other. But notice how it belongs to the other. The, each, the other's body belongs to them, but only for yes, not for no. Each body belongs to the other for yes, because marriage is yes. And so we see here what it means to prize the sexual union actually within marriage. And what it does not mean is a Victorian prim and proper. What it does mean is a biblical, celebratory, enthusiastic and often. There is no other way to prize it. So panning out, we need to follow the example of our forefathers and foremothers in the faith who lived 2,000 years ago. Because had they been willing to accommodate the culture, not one single Christian would have died a martyr. If they were wrong in standing on these things, all those Christians died in vain. But I don't think they died in vain. They died because they were being faithful. So we need to follow in their footsteps. We need to be the most honest, most trustworthy, hardest-working people in America At the same time, we need to worship only the one true God through Jesus Christ. And that needs to shape us. We need to prize God's priceless gift of marriage and the sexual union and condemn sex in any other context. And we need to confess Jesus alone as Lord, not our secular Our secular, ever-increasing, all-powerful, more and more central government. That's just Caesar in new garb. They've shown us the way. Let's follow in their footsteps. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.